0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Greetings from uh, from the downtown campus. Some of you may not know, um, I'm the pastor of the downtown campus. Joel pastors this uh, campus here, but we're one church, and uh, it's really cool because we share uh, a mission, and some of you uh, have been down there for a season, and some of you are here for a season, and... That's awesome because our greatest prayer for you as a community is that you'd grasp God's vision for your life and to live that out with passion and deep conviction. Um, so it's exciting to see that happening. And uh, we are on a journey down there. Um, I'm about to be homeless. So I kind of like that idea. So if I'm standing outside y'all's door after service is asking for money, then you understand what's going on. Don't just offer to buy me a Big Mac, you know? <clears throat> well let me um, try to unpack a few things for you today. I'm really kinda humbled to um to be in front of you today. The Lord has um just been um whew, just undoing me these last two weeks. And just some Remarkable ways because there there is a part of me that does not want anything of God. I'm just serious. There there's a part of me that I I don't want God to come into my world because um, because God is too big. I mean I just I, I got I got things lined up just right. It's just like you know when we had little kids we we bought what a lot of you have bought is uh that plastic bowling set. You ever had played with one of those? Those things are crap. I mean, seriously, because they're so light that if one falls over accidentally, they all go, you know? And that's my life, is that I am busy lining up all the pins right where I want them to be, and they're all neat, and like the air conditioner kicks on and blows one over, and... And if God and all His bigness and His force comes into my world, I know what He's going to do. He's just going to mess it up. And that's what God does. He wrecks things. I mean, anyway, so that's me. But we've been going through this book of Acts for the last couple of months, and really, we detour downtown from this Uh, a couple months ago one Sunday because I was just wrecked by a passage of Scripture where Jesus um, came to a fig tree and that fig tree uh, didn't have any figs on it and Jesus cursed the fig tree and it died. And in the book of Mark Mark puts this little comment in there that says it was not the season for figs. (laughs) So here's a tree that's doing what a tree does. A tree doesn't produce fruit out of season. It's just doing all that it can do. So why would Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, come to a tree and curse it for doing what a tree does? Why would He expect from a tree what's impossible for that tree to do and curse it because it wasn't doing the impossible? Did y'all follow that? It seems very clear to me. Uh, But that doesn't mean much to you, I'm sure. And it dawned on me in this this revelation that Jesus has come to curse what we consider normal. He's come to curse it. Matter of fact, uh, Scripture talks very much about how Christ became a curse for us that were cursed so that we could experience the non-cursed life or what Scripture says the blessing life or the blessing of God. And today we're in Acts chapter 10 and I think this passage speaks to uh, some pretty powerful stuff. And what it speaks to is that that normal, what's normal for me, and I believe that it's normal for you too, even though you may not admit it today. And that's normal too. I just want you to know that denial is about as normal as taking a breath. You know, in the normal, all right? But what's also normal is that that I was born to, to control. I was born to want control and to be controlling that anger, controlling and anger, they're both as normal for me as uh gravity and selfishness. And this passage speaks to these three things. I and mean, we're not gonna have time to talk about all three of them today, but I want to tell you that I believe that controlling things, or wanting control, or wanting the power to control, anger and selfishness, that they're so natural that we 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 don't see them sometimes because they're so natural. You know? Is there something in your life that you walk past every day that you don't see, but when somebody new comes in your house, they go, hmm, oh, how about this? Does, does your house have a smell to it? I mean, seriously, none of us go, no, my house doesn't smell. Are you kidding me? I clean my house. Have you ever walked into somebody's house and go, wow, their house smells different than mine? Yes. yes. Because it's become so natural for them they don't even smell it anymore, but when we walk in even if it's a pleasant odor, we immediately recognize it Is't that brilliant that I have the capacity to see controlling anger and selfishness in you but I completely don't smell it in my own life anymore yeah okay all right well let's uh, let's unpack this passage because this is the the history of the early church and this is a significant passage of scripture. Because up to chapter 9, all we're really seeing is um, Christ died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He's brought forgiveness and restoration, and he's building his church, but he's primarily building it in the Jewish community. It started at the Passover and in Jerusalem, and people were staying, and then they were scattered, and they started preaching the word. But primarily and almost exclusively, this was happening in the Jewish community. Chapter 10, (laughs) This explosion happens to where now we realize that God's scope for his kingdom and for ministry and what he calls his family is so much bigger than what the Jewish country or the Jewish people could ever have comprehended. Now he was bringing the Gentiles in. And there are two people in this story that I want us just to look at briefly before we come to the communion table. One is a Roman soldier. His name is Cornelius. And the second is a Jewish apostle whose name is Peter. And so, uh, let's go to chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And one day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. Now, because we're reading the Bible, we don't think that's unusual. You know, like if we were reading the newspaper, we would go, what? What? Carl Dean had a vision? You know, we would, what that can't be. Read that again, you know. But since we're in the Bible and we're in church, he's like, yeah, I have a vision, you know. But this is remarkable, all right? Okay, trust me on that one. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, listen to this, this is profound. This is what he said. Cornelius? That was profound, wasn't it? Anyway, all right. that's in there and then in verse 4 Cornelius stared at him in fear what is it Lord he asked so we have this guy let's stop for a minute because we have this Roman soldier now the Roman regiments were made up basically of 6,000 men which were divided into groups of 1,000 which that group of 1,000 were divided up into groups of 100 and they were called the centuries the centurions and the, the leader of that 100 was their commander and this was this guy He led a hundred men. He was a man of authority. He was a man of power. Obviously, he was a military man. If any of you have ever been in the military, you know what that means. Or if any of you have military parents, you know what it means? And he and his family were devout, God-fearing, and they were the ones that gave generously. I mean, let's just think about how outrageous this is. Because remember, nine chapters earlier, the disciples were hiding in the upper room. Who were they hiding from? The Romans. The Romans had crucified Jesus. And they believed that they were going to hunt them down and crucify them too. This guy was not only a part of the occupying army. He was a part of the force that had positioned themselves directly opposed to the movement of God in Christ. And all of a sudden now we read about this guy who is devout. He's a man of prayer. He's God-fearing. He's generous. What is going on in this man's life? And then he had a vision about a Jewish fisherman? It's really kind of outrageous, but it gets even better. Then we come to the second character in our story who is the Apostle Peter. You may may remember Peter. Uh, He was the one that looked at Jesus when Jesus disclosed to his disciples that I'm going to die for you. And Peter was the one that said, no, 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 you're not going to do that. Remember when he said that? And what did Jesus say back to Peter? Do any of you remember that? Anybody got your Bible trivia down? What? Nick! Give him a round of applause. That was awesome. Just, wow, that was such a weak applause. Nick, no appreciation in the room, man. Wow. Okay, that was even sad, too. That was like one of those sympathy. He said we should applaud, so I better applaud. And Anyway... But God said, Jesus said to Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan. This is the same Peter who said to the Son of God, to the Christ, to the Messiah, I know you just told us what it is that you're going to do, but I ain't going to let that happen. Really? This is the same Peter that when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, Peter said, no, you're not going to wash my feet. It ain't going to happen. I'll wash your feet, but you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says to him, you know, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have anything to do with me. So Peter talking about pendulum swing, Peter, swings, well, then bathe every bit of me, you know, because I want to be all about you. This is the same Peter who in the garden of Gethsemane told Jesus, get behind me. They're not taking you. Took out the sword, whoosh, took off a man's ear. Remember that? This is the same Peter who told Jesus, I will never deny you. And yet before dawn, he had denied Christ three times. This is the same Peter who after denying Christ three times, put down any sense of being a disciple, any sense of his faith in God, any sense of who he thought he was, and he walked back to his boat and said, I'll just become a fisherman again. This is the same Peter who Jesus said, No, Peter, that's not good. And he came after Peter. This is the same Peter who jumped off the boat when he saw Jesus. This is the same Peter who preached the greatest sermon that we've ever seen at Pentecost when 3,000. This is the same same Peter. Verse 11. Peter was... Uh, actually, let me give you a little heads up. Uh, he was on a roof praying... He was hungry and he was waiting for his food to be prepared. And in verse 11, he saw heaven open, and something looked like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, "Get up, Peter, kill and eat." Now, I told the downtown congregation, "We really there's nothing I can really do this morning." to help you comprehend how outrageous that is to a Jew for them to have a vision of a sheep being lowered with a bunch of pigs in it and hearing God's voice say, get up, kill, i got to touch, and then after you kill, I want you to fry up a bunch of bacon and enjoy it. I mean, to us, we're like, are you kidding me? Celebration. But I'm telling you, to an Orthodox Jew... To have a vision that everything, his entire life, he's been told that God requires this of you and you're to be kosher and you're not to touch any of those things. Don't touch those things, much less eat them. And now for God to say, I've lowered the sheet, now come and eat. There is nothing more radical than God cursing what Peter thought was normal and was calling Peter into something that was completely unusual, completely different, completely supernatural. Because the life of being kosher was normal for Peter. That was normal. The life of being a Roman soldier that had power, that was normal for the Roman. And in both of these stories, we see that God is is crashing in and He's cursing what they considered normal. And He's calling them to something that's completely different than the normal. I mean, the only way that, this is just such a weak illustration. I'm just declaring that right now, okay? Because y'all are going to go to lunch and go, man, that, that illustration stunk. Well, I know it does, but it's the best I got right now, right? But have any of y'all ever been on uh, a, a, a no-carb diet? None of you. See, this is getting stinkier by the minute, all right? Have any of you ever tried to alter what you eat? How difficult was that? You know, with me, if I decide, okay, man, I'm just going to change... My life, Like, I'm just going to eat fruit for breakfast. No more biscuits. No more of those, like, McDonald's McGriddle sandwiches. All right? I'm not doing that sausage and dripping, like, syrup as bread into the bread somehow. I don't know. It's just glorious. It's supernatural how they do that. It's almost heavenly manna. You know? But I'm not going to eat those anymore. But as soon as I declare I will not, something awakens within me. That all I can think about is McGriddles. McGriddles, you know? I got a McGriddle <laughs> because all you got to do is to say something's going to change for me to passionately care about what's being taken away from me now that's just that's funny because any of us in this room can understand that but think about a whole lifestyle think about a generational. Lifestyle. Think about your value systems are completely wrapped up around the kind of food that you eat and why you eat it is tied to who you are in the sight of God. And God comes in and goes, Yeah, that's all going to change. Pretty outrageous. Yet God was making for Himself a new people. Because God was saying that Christ had fully fulfilled the law, that Christ had kept everything in the law, that He didn't falter on one point. And there's only one place that we stand now in the face of God, and that is on Christ and not on what we do or what we've done or what we hope to do or what we hope to not do. Just one place we stand, and that's Christ alone. So let's go to uh, let's go to this passage and let's talk about the three things I said a minute ago. Control and anger and selfishness. And like I said, we won't get to all of those, but... Um, Remember that what we're talking about here is that God is cursing the normal and he's calling us into the supernatural like he was the Roman centurion and Peter. And I'm kind of drawing on um, this book that maybe some of you have read. This is, uh, some of you know Al Andrews. He's uh, a counselor here in Nashville. A number of years ago, he collaborated with Larry Crabb and they wrote a book called The Silence of Adam and uh, really uh, dealing and tackling with issues of men. And um, I'm going to draw on this a little bit because what I want us to understand is is wanting control in my life, like wanting to have the rules laid out for me, wanting to know what's expected of me and trying to accomplish that or trying to control the world that I live in is as natural as breath. It's as natural as me taking a deep breath. Now listen to what... Uh, what Al has to say about that. And this is in the context of men. This is a book for men. But, uh, and that's because women don't struggle with issues of control. No. Women, you need to apply. All right, You need to work a little harder here. An unmanly man controls conversations. He manipulates family and friends. He arranges his life to avoid whatever he's not sure he can handle. He trusts no one, not deeply. He works hard to maneuver himself into a favorable light, into a position where he comes out on top or at least unchallenged. He's not a good listener. He rarely asks meaningful questions, preferring either to offer opinions or remain quiet. No one feels pursued by him, except when their friendships might work to his advantage. When he does take an interest in you, it has the feel of a car salesman asking to see a picture of your family. It goes on to say that those who control, they're hiding their impotence because their powerless men find something they can control, something they can handle well, and they avoid what they fear. They then regard whatever they can control as important and occupy most of their energy in handling it. It may be something as mundane as keeping a car clean, as wrong as seducing another woman, as irritating as lighting up very serious conversations with jokes, as well-received as writing a best-selling critique of culture or consuming as growing a business or expanding a ministry. Powerless men spend their lives controlling some outcome and deceiving themselves into thinking that it matters. Grav is talking about, along with Al, is that it is natural for us to live in a place to where I want to control the world that I live in. I want to control conversations. I want to keep myself constantly in a place to where I'm trying to get power. Where I'm trying to get power to control the world that I live in. You know, I don't know about you, but it's, it's funny how, uh, how easy it is for me to run to control as the answers to the struggles that I face in my life. And it's funny because when I feel like sometimes my life is getting out of control and I'm getting a little afraid or or I'm getting a little worried about how things are going to work out, I might find solace in rearranging my sock drawer or going to uh, to the garage and cleaning out the garage and making sure that all my screwdrivers are hung up in the right place because it gives me some sense that maybe there's something in this world that I can control. Or to go to my iPod and rearrange the song selection so that my shuffle actually does play and spend hours doing that. Or going in and trying to make my computer just a little bit faster as if I've got some power to do that. And spend maybe a whole day doing that. <laughs> Have you all ever had that experience? Or cook an absolute fabulous... Well, that's not my problem. All right? Mm-hmm. as Joel. Although I'm a fabulous cook, right Joel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Toast, cereal. That at the core of my fallenness is this constant searching that I could have power to do something, power to get what I want, power to get what I think I need. And yet constantly being reminded that I don't have that power. Acts chapter 10, let's come back to this. This is in verse 24. Peter had had a vision that he was to go to the house of Cornelius and this Roman centurion and bring him the truth. And uh, so he travels for two days. And this is halfway through verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. And the following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. And had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius had this vision of Peter. He sent a couple of his guys to go find Peter and he's waiting for him to return. And he sees that they're coming back together and he calls all his families and his friends together because he had this vision from God. And here comes the man that he had the vision about. And this guy's got something because they they were sent sent for him and he's coming back with something. Peter walks into the room. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Your version may say, in worship. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. What's remarkable about this revelation is that what would make a Roman centurion, an authoritative man of power in the military, fall at the feet of a fisherman and worship him? Does that seem odd to you? That's not normal. What would make him do that? Unless something had happened in his life that was serious enough for him to be willing to give up his sense of position, his sense of power, and his sense of control of the situation to humble himself and throw himself at the feet of his fishermen. I mean, seriously, what would that take for you? What would it take for someone to walk into your house and for you to throw yourself at their feet and worship them? I mean, come on. Would they have to elevate or levitate? You know? I mean, would they have to bring you a bunch of money? I mean, what would it take for somebody to come in your house to you to do that? This is remarkable. This is the Roman soldier who his people crucified Christ He hungered for something different. Are you tired of the illusion of being in control? Does it ever wear you out? Does it ever get to the point to where you realize, I have control over nothing? Nothing. Seriously, what do you have control over? Do you have control that your kids are going to be healthy? That they're going to succeed? Do you have control about whether or not your marriage is going to last or not? Do you have control over whether or not you're going to get married? Do you have control over your health? We think we do. Do you have control over the day that you're going to die? How many more days you're going to live? Do you have, do you have, I mean, where is the control? I love the little uh, dotted line in the middle of the road. Because it gives me some sense of control. As long as I stay on my side, they're going to stay on their side, and we got this little thing across our chest called a seatbelt. We're safe. Well, we're safer. But something had happened in this Roman's life to where he says, I'm willing to give that up because he hungered for something much more powerful. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 for those that are in Christ. Paul was praying for the early Christians that their eyes would be open, that they would understand the hope that is theirs in Christ, the riches that is theirs in Christ, and then the power. Listen to what he says about this power. His incomparable the stomach, Jesus, his great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. When I give up, my power, my control, and I step out of the normal into the supernatural that Christ has purchased with me, for me, by His body and His blood, I'm stepping into the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. Really? Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. This is Christ. And every title that can be given. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is everything. And the next sentence is, Remember, you were dead. What's normal for dead people? I mean, I, I can't remember the last the last funeral that I went to that the person that we're burying that that they had some expectations on them. You know what I mean? I mean they didn't have any part of the program. You know, they, there are no expectations on dead people because when we're dead, what is normal for dead is dead living. What's normal for the illusion that somehow I can control the world that I live in, which is normal for us, or to control people, or to control situations so that I can get what I want, that's normal, but the Bible says it's dead living. It gets us nowhere. There's no life to be found in it. But when we come into this journey of the Spirit, where we desire that which is of God, it brings us into a power that's greater than anything we could have comprehended over here. What's really cool about uh, this journey of giving up control and stepping into this journey is in this place I can begin to experience the work and the power of God. Let me give you an example. You know, uh, a number of years ago, Renee and I were living in this townhouse. And uh, it was the middle of the night and we woke up and I heard a bunch of screaming happen, happening out in the parking lot. And... Uh, we had some neighbors across the street that their marriage was just pretty volatile and they were often going at it with each other. And so it was like two in the morning and they were in the parking lot just going at it, you know, and, and worshiping and praising Jesus. No, I mean, they were just, you know, <laughs> elbows and fists and names and cussing. And I was, I was at that, we had those little mini blinds, you know, and you know, if you're smart, you can, you can open them to where they can't see that you're watching, you know, so I'm up there going, Woo-hoo, wow, Renee, are you catching this? And she didn't say anything. And I'm like, Renee. Look at this, they are going at it. Look, this is unbelievable. And I look around and she's not, she's not in the room. I'm like, how could she miss this opportunity to be voyeuristic into the problems of our neighbors? It's what we all do, isn't it? Because I can stand there at that window and go, we are not like that. We are so good. We've got it made. And I'm looking at, Renee, where are you? You're missing all the good stuff. And I look down and I see her in her pajamas walking across the parking lot. And I'm like, what are you doing? So I go downstairs to open the door for her when she's coming back in. I'm like, well, what, are you, what are you doing out there? And she's coming in with all their kids in our living room. Those children don't need to be a part of that. And then she walked back out. Ask me what she did. Now seriously, this is participation. Nothing. Here's the beautiful thing, guys, and I know it's taken us a long way to get to this point, but this is you gotta get this, is that, man, I'm telling you that you were made for power. You were made for it you are made in the image of god and over here in this broken place that we consider normal that's not where power is found that's where we think power is found we control things manipulate things make sure we get what we want all like you know hey guys this right here this is this is an impersonation of what is real. This is what we call insanity. This is believing little green people walk around you know, and speak to us. This is not real. The real is the supernatural. And the supernatural says you were made for power. But it's a power that's greater than what comes from you. It's a power that comes to you only by what Christ did on the cross. And if you don't ever walk into that, you're going to constantly be walking around in circles over here saying, this life doesn't work. Man, I can't believe that guy did that. Because it's so unsatisfying. When we can walk into the journey over here of experiencing the power of God. Getting back to Renee, what did she do? Nothing. But she knew she had the power of God to walk into that situation and not be afraid. What did you do? Nothing. Why not? Why not? I was just there. Why? Christ gave me the hope of glory. What does that mean? I was ready for whatever God wanted me for. You get it? Can you imagine taking that into your marriage? How are we going to fix this problem? How are we ever going to get past this issue? I don't know. I cannot tell you how supernatural and otherworldly it is to be in a situation and say, I don't know. And be at rest in it. And be at peace in it. You know, downtown, we're losing our building. What are we going to do? I don't know. Guess what? Ain't our problem. He's Lord of the church. Now we're faithful to listen. And when he says go, we go. And that's the second point that I just want to bring up really quickly before we come to the table. Crabb talks about, and so does Al Andrews, they talk about that, that this place over here is a place of sheer terror. It is natural for you to live in fear. It's natural. It's natural for you to be afraid of the future. It's natural for you to be afraid of the past. It's natural for you to be afraid of of the the things that may never happen. I have the capacity to be afraid of stuff that I only imagine in my mind that never actually come to pass. You all do that? Well, what if, what if, what what if, what if, what if? And then, then, you know, and then Mount Everest kind of falls into the ocean and it's going to flood our church this morning. You know? (gasps) I don't know if I can eat lunch today. Well... That's not true. But, you know, the sheer terror, if I've come to the realization that I have no control, then I come to the place of sheer terror unless I walk into this place of saying, I don't know, but whatever it is, bring it. Let me explain. Let's go back to to this passage in... uh, in chapter 10 God said to Peter get up Peter kill and eat what did Peter say to him? yeah let me give you a modern translation of that no okay I don't know how many visions you get in your life like do you have any this morning? you know where God revealed himself he manifested his presence into your life in a physical form And he speaks to you, and you go, yeah, that's pretty good. You know, I I like the high-def imagery on that. And uh, I don't know, is that surround sound I hear for you? That's amazing. And oh, by the way, no. No. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Yeah, I hear you, but no. You don't believe me? Listen to this. This happened three times. God came to Peter three times. Wow. The sheer terror of God stepping into our lives and changing what I refuse to let Him change. What do we do with that? Let me take in one last place, and then we're going to come to this table here. Because when I step away from my terror, when I step away from my fear, when I step away from my control, and I step into the I don't know, I also step into the place of saying, I will take whatever you give me, Lord. The Lord was giving Peter something Peter had never been given before, and Peter was saying to God, no. Now, let me just ask you a question. What is God giving you right now that you're saying to God, no? I mean, seriously. Is it your singleness? Is it where your music career is right now? Is it where your relationships are? Is it your cynicism? Is it your doubts? Is it your anger? Is it your relationships? Is it your marriage? Is it your kids? I mean, come on. I don't know. There may be some parents in here that are saying, Yeah, God, you messed up. I wanted the neighbor's kids. The one that got good grades in school. Or maybe it's the issues that you struggle with in your life. Or maybe the sins that you struggle with in your life. You don't want that sin. Maybe you're tired of struggling with homosexuality. And you're like, that's not fair. Why didn't you give me a different sin? That's not the cross that I want to pick up. That's not the one I want. How many places in your life are you saying to God, you lowered the sheet and that's what you're asking me to step into and I'm looking at you and going, no! No! I'm not going to do it. I'm going to live in shame of it. I'm going to despise it. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to be in terror of it. And guess what? I'm going to be pissed off my whole life. But I'm not going to receive it. Imagine the freedom of saying, I have no control. And what I have, He's given me. Thank you, Lord, for this woman that you've given me that I don't love or even like sometimes. Thank you. I receive it. Thank you, Lord, for the struggle that you're giving me in my business. Thank you for the inconsistencies that you're giving me. Thank you for my lack of desire to even want to follow you right now. (laughs) Come on, you're kidding me. Thank you for my doubts. Because if I was truly sincere about my doubts, then I would doubt my doubts. And I'm going to receive both of that right from you. Right? Thank you for my questions. Thank you for all the screwed up ways that you made me. I receive it all. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. But thank you because you are real and you are present and you are here. How do you do that? Okay. This is the last thing. Because here's the linchpin. Peter turned to the Roman centurion and they go okay we're here what do you got for us and Peter goes he started every sentence with well you know he said it, he did seriously go to it you can read it you know you know about Jesus you heard about him you know he healed a bunch of people you know you know he wasn't telling him anything new just like I'm not telling you anything new this morning most of you here this morning I mean you could get up here and do this come on seriously. But then he did this. He said to them, Jesus came to give us forgiveness. Hmm. And when Peter spoke those words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues. Should we do that? I don't know. Is He going to do that for us? I don't know. If He does it, we receive it. If He doesn't, we receive it. Listen, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. The door that opens, that that gets me out of this I'm control freak and out of this I'm a terror freak into this pure joy of God. I can be in a situation and not know what to do because you're here with me and I'll take whatever you got for me today, is understanding that we are forgiven. I'm not joking with you here, I'm serious. When Christ went to the cross and we receive His work on the cross, He takes away every sin, every mistake. Not just what I've done. And not the ones that you're committing right now. Which you may be, I don't know. (laughs) Or the ones you're going to commit in the future. There is nothing you can do to separate you from the hand of God and from His presence. Nothing if you are in the forgiveness that Christ has purchased for you on the cross. Do you understand how radical that is? Because if that's true, God says, I have made you holy. And because I've made you holy, now you belong. Get this. You belong in the holy. That's why God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll walk into any situation. God is with me. What's going to happen to you? Whatever he wants. What are you going to do with that? Thank you, Lord. And how do I do that? They praised God. They worshipped. That's how they brought to the surface what was internally true about them. They worshipped the Lord. You know, it's crazy. uh, (laughs) When I was in Africa a couple of years ago, even the other times that I've been... Have any of you ever worshipped in an, uh, a rural African church? It's really nothing to it. You know, the the it's the National Geographic grass hut kind of thing. You know, no sound system. And but when they gather, they pack into this thing, into this um, smaller room than this, the church that we were in last time we were when we were um, over there. And uh, we uh, th- they were just going nuts. I mean, it was they were singing with such you know, just loud, and they were dancing, and just, man, they were just worshiping the Lord, and and we were sitting up front, because we were the guests, and, you know, it's just kind of different, you know, they had made all of us little cakes, you know, and just, y'all didn't do that for me today. Anyway, uh, so, and you're up there, and they're all, you're watching them, and we're all, you know, you know, we're just kind of doing the, I'm a tame American kind of worship, you know? And what's crazy is maybe you can understand there's a part of me that wanted to, to just, just you know, body surf into the crowd of them, you know, and just, you know, and just unleash it with them, you know, and be a African, you know, and uh, just go nuts with them and just praise in the Lord. But there was also a part of me that just held back because I was like, wow, that just seems so out of control. I'm not sure how they'll understand that. I'm not sure how I'll understand that. It just, is that phony? Is that, you know, Lord, you know, and all this hesitation. And yet within me, there's something that burns with a passion to unleash that part of me that wants to praise God with all the energy of my life. I only tell that story is because I just want to encourage you that we, we're about to come to the table. And, uh, and we're about to come to the table uh, to worship him, to remember. And um, you may not dance. I'm not putting pressure on you to dance. I hope that you do practice dancing in your private worship. Uh, scripture talks a lot about dancing. If you don't and you want to talk to me about that, I'd be happy to dance for you later. I hope you shout in your private worship. I hope you cry in your private worship. I hope you experience the Lord in all the ways that He's made you to taste Him and know that He is good, even in your deepest, darkest fears and doubts, that He would bring that into your life. You know. But we're about to come to this table and we're about to worship Him by remembering what He has done. That what He did was He set us free. And he set us free what is normal. He cursed that. And he's bringing us into what's not normal, to be free people. There was a, um, a lab that uh, shut down a number of years ago, a research lab. And so the doctors in that lab decided to take all the mice that they had for research and take them out to a field and to open the cage and let these mice go and give them their freedom as a last act of the laboratory's work. And so they were astonished when they opened up the gates and none of the mice ever left the cages. Because the mice didn't have any concept of a life out in a field where you're free. Because all they'd ever known was a cage. And what we're talking about today is free living. We're talking about stepping out of the cage that Jesus, through the cross, blew the doors off the cage. And there is nothing that can put those doors back on the cage again. And if we're still in the cage of our addictions, if we're still in the cage of our fears, if we're still in the cages of our trying to control or our doubts or our angry with God, God is asking us through His forgiveness of us to step out of that cage into the fresh air of the freedom that He's purchased for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. So Cornelius and his entire family, it was crazy. They received the, the Word of the Lord with exuberance and with the Holy Spirit, and the speaking of tongues. And then they turned to Peter and they said, Hey, why don't you stay for a few days?